Welcome to Story of a Storyteller. I'm your host, Connor Braden. This is the show where I found out all about the ins and outs of the lives of storytellers of all kinds. You can find my free novella, The Stolen Dagger, episode show notes, links to all sorts of amazing books, and more at connorbraden.com slash podcast. Enjoy! Hello, story lovers, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 4 of the podcast. Today's guest is Bill Johnson, author of Snowblind, a memoir. Bill joins me on the show to tell me his astounding life story. We talk about his early childhood, on how he and his sister were never left wanting for anything, and that the respect that he had for his hard-working parents growing up. We talk in-depth about the tragic and random attack on Bill that permanently blinded him and killed two others. We speak about how his attitude to his acquired disability helped him get through it, and how the th- we, he also tells me about the things he found surprisingly difficult. Bill goes on to talk about how, a mere seven months after the attack, he went skiing, of all things. Inspirational and impressive are just two of many words I would use to describe this man. For my own writing, I have finally broken through to the second half of the sequel of my first novel. I tried writing this uh, sequel before, back in November 2020, and um, I specifically tried something new. I tried to uh, pants the book, or I tried to plot it as I went instead of uh, planning it extensively like I normally do. Now, this is a totally legitimate way to write books, and it's a way many people write books, but it is just not for me, I discovered. Um, I I failed the last time I tried to write this book. I ended up writing characters I didn't love, a story I wasn't compelled by, and I abandoned that manuscript at 38,000 words. Thankfully, I just got past that mark earlier today as of recording this in my new attempt. So I'm much more motivated and excited by this version of the book. So hopefully this will be the book that is published. In other news, and to be honest, this really isn't a big deal at all, but the podcast now has an Instagram page. So please come along and join in on the conversation. It'd be great to get to know some of you. So just search story of a storyteller on Instagram and the account should show up. Anyways, on with the show. So let's get to know Bill Johnson. Hello, Bill, and welcome to Story of a Storyteller. It's nice to have you on. Thank you, Connor. Very nice to meet you. and I, I really appreciate you uh, having me. Not at all. I, when I first uh, came across your uh, book and your kind of story, I kind of said to myself, I have to get this guy on. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, so first of all, uh, how, how are you just doing in general right now? Um, I know it's early morning for you and it's late afternoon for me. So, Well, it's, it's uh, 10 a.m. or so, which isn't too early. Uh, you know, it seems like the older I've gotten, the earlier I wake up. So uh, <laughs> everything's good. That's good. That's good. Well, why, seeing as it's early, uh, well, it's not early for you, why don't we start with um, early Bill and you as a as a kid, could you tell me a little bit about growing up? Um, did you have any siblings? What were your parents like? That kind of a thing. Yeah, I have. Uh, I do have a sister who's two years younger than me. So there was two kids in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, my father uh, went to world in a World War II. He was over in Europe and um, came home from there. Uh, went to work at what we call the telephone company here in the United States, but. Um, AT&T, Southwestern Bell, and uh, had a career there. Um, so when I grew up, it was in the 50s, 60s. Um, and I often say it was very leave it like leave it to Beaver, which was an old TV show in, uh, in the United States. that was just, you know, a very traditional working father, stay at home mother, um, very middle class. And uh, you know, I, I didn't want for a thing. Uh, well, I mean, you, you, know, couldn't, you couldn't ask for better, I suppose, could you? Not really. Yeah. It, you know, it wasn't a lap of luxury, but we, we absolutely had it. We, we were doing, we did fine. And, uh, you know, it's just lots of uh, a very stable environment. Excellent. And did, did you grow up close to where you are now in Missouri or did you grow up somewhere else? 
I did grow up in Missouri, um, in St. Louis. And um, amazingly enough, the, the house I'm living in today is less than a block away from the house I lived in when I was 12 years old that my parents wow. lived in for a long time. Um, but I've, I've been around a little bit. I went to college in Kansas. I uh, had a j- couple of jobs that sent me one to Little Rock, Arkansas, one to Southern Illinois. And uh, I seem to keep coming back to St. Louis. <laughs> I, how much of a change um, do you think there is in Saint, the St. Louis that you're living in now versus the one you grew up in? Oh, that that's a diff, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I, I think St. Louis has always had a lot of great people and um, good neighborhoods. We're you know really a grouping of a lot of suburban communities, and I live in a suburb. Um, and and many of the communities are the same. Some of them have have changed economically. St. Louis doesn't have as many um, Fortune 500 headquarters. As it once did, uh, we are probably not the most vibrant economy uh, compared to other parts of the country. Mm. But um, you know, the population has has remained uh, stable in the metropolitan area, grown a little bit, and um, you know, there's jobs for people that want them right now. So um, I don't know. The, the overall vibe to me is very very similar to when I grew up. Um, other than, you know, the various changes in the world that, that, that have happened. Uh, ever well, yeah, 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 of course. And there, there's, there's been a few. <laughs> I mean, even in the last 18 months, there has been a lot of changes. <laughs> it, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and what, what about then why, uh, when you were young in, in uh, St. Louis? Like, was reading and writing, were those things that you were very interested in as a kid? Or was that something that just, I have to do it because school makes me? Uh, you know, I think I was, um, I'd say a little conflicted or a little uncommitted. Um, you know, I was very fortunate. I was just always raised expecting that I would go to college. My parents had both gone to college. Um, I, I never considered that I wouldn't. Academics were always encouraged and, um, you know, I think my parents asked me about homework and this and that. I, I will say I, I was not a very attentive student, but I think I've learned in later life somehow just by, just by showing up, <laughs> um, I really did end up with a good education. Um, I always enjoyed the things I read, but I didn't have a passion for reading. Um, I had probably other things that were... Uh, uh, you know, I was more interested in spending my, you know, free time on recreational time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But, um, but you know, I always read and, you know, always showed up in school. So I, I learned uh, the rudiments of the English language and writing. You just got the basics and that was good enough. You were like, right, I'm out of here. I'm going to go play. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's good. That's good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that either. Trust me. I'm a, I'm a teacher in my day job and um, a primary school teacher, which is the same as elementary school. And yeah, I, I've met a lot of kids like yourself. They just want to get the bare minimum and then just go have fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've laughed of, you know, since I published this book and uh, a lot of friends have been kind of shocked that, you know, that I was able to write a book even, uh, you know, <laughs> or at least they like to act that way maybe to tease me, but, um, you know, in writing it, I, I did recognize, and I I guess I'd encourage the teachers to keep teaching whether they think kids are paying attention or not. Cause I I think there's any of my English teachers throughout the years would probably be shocked that I could write a book that was, you know, reasonably well constructed in terms of the English language and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe even better than that. I mean, I, you know, I've been told that it's pretty easy to read and, or, and, or at least maybe very easy to read and compelling. And uh, so. And that's, that's really, really good. Surprising. 
yeah well there's nothing a teacher loves more than being pleasantly surprised i can tell you that much so uh <laughs> yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure if they knew they'd be delighted um so your parents kind of always pushed you towards you know study and like that you were going to go to college um so when you did go you said you went to kansas uh to college wasn't it yep yeah so what was your uh what, what were you going to college for what was the thing you were studying your major uh well I went up really without a major um, or, or without a really focused interest in anything. I, maybe because of my dad's career, um, being kind of a businessman, the, the first major I tried was business administration. And um, I'll, I'll have to admit, I, I was not a very attentive student. It was during the late, uh, late 60s, early 70s, and there was a lot of things going on. And campuses in the United States and uh, anti-war, you know, Vietnam type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, you know, I wasn't a very, I wasn't the best student. I'll, I'll say that. So I bounced around from major to major, um, ultimately ended up with a degree in psychology and uh, found myself driving a forklift, which I thought was fun, but not exactly what I'd pictured with my college education. And um, so I did go back to business school, finally, a little more seriously, and uh, got a master's degree in business administration. And uh, so you, you started a business administration, bounced around yeah. for a while, but you finished with the master's in business administration. That's, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> so you should, would, if you, do you think that would have happened if you went to college in a different era? Do you think you would have been... Uh, happy to start and finish at the same thing and bouncing around all between? Oh boy. I don't know. That, that would be a deep question to answer that. Um, (laughs) maybe it did a different time. I, I just was probably, um, if, if I'd had a, it was nice to blame the fact that I actually went to college on, um, those times and that had I not gone to college, I would have ended up in Vietnam and I, I, didn't have any interest in doing that. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I guess I don't give it too much thought anymore, but I, I, I wasn't an enthusiastic student and, and I, I regret that a lot. I, you know, later in life have gotten to really love to learn things, love to learn different subjects and learn more about things. And um, I look, I look back on it as kind of an opportunity lost, but, well, I mean, you still landed on your feet. You're still a published author and you're still like, you've achieved a lot, you know? And I think like, I don't, I can't speak towards America, but I do think in Ireland at the very least, there is a very, um, there's a lot of pressure on people that if you don't go to college, you're not going to get a good career or a good job or whatever. And I don't think that's necessarily mm-hmm. true. I think as long as you're happy with what you're doing and you're passionate and you work hard, you can still have something fulfilling. Same thing over here. And I, I think there's, there is an acceptance. There's at least a lot of people who put forward the idea these days that, you know, there's a lot of trades and other approaches to careers that, you know, may, if, if, you know, if money is the objective, you may make more money. Many people make, may, may make more money doing some things other than what their college education delivers to them. And uh, certainly there's a lot of choices. I'm, you know, I'm, I have no regrets. I'm glad uh, my life took the path that it did. And I had, you know, the experiences that, you know, at least from my uh, employment standpoint that, that I had to bring me to where I was. And of course, where you ended up was working with, uh, eventually working with AT&T, which is the same company your father had been working for. Is that right? Yeah, the division of it, it's Southwestern Bell. But yeah, AT&T is the company name that's out there these days. Yeah. Okay. And um, w- did you ever work with your dad or were you just in the same huge company and two different sides of it? Um, definitely two different sides of it. He, uh, I had a, I had several summer jobs that he certainly was able to get me hooked up to um, learning the, the, what we call the crafts, you know, the installation and 
that end of that business, you know, what the wires are and how to make it work. And I really enjoyed that. I did always enjoy working with my hands. Um, after college, I, I went to work first at Chrysler Corporation in, in a role as a factory rep. And uh, I determined that I, I didn't enjoy that as much as I might have thought that I would have because I, I did enjoy cars a lot. But um, so I, when I left Chrysler, I went, ended up at Southwestern Bell. In, but I was in a marketing department and they were really uh, dealing with the um, deregulation of, you know, telecommunications here in, in the United States. Mm. Um, and it really opened up marketing to big businesses as a kind of a, you know, a career. They were hiring a lot of people and, and I was able to get on board. So you're in a very corporate world then at this stage, right? That's right. And what, what, what is that like? Because <laughs> I, and the reason I ask this is um, I, I, I always laugh at myself because myself and most of my very close friends are people that are other teachers. And we're in this very um, tiny little bubble where, where, you know, people skills is the most important thing. And, and then when I do end up talking to you or meeting people, especially through this podcast um, that are not working with children um, working <laughs> in big corporate things they have all these different skills and uh, it's almost like talking to somebody with a completely different language at times um so what are what what was the corporate world like at that point in the um in the 80s early 90s um you know it uh I, i'd say it's probably hard to just characterize um the corporate world in a in a broad general sense, I I know for myself when I was with Chrysler and then ended up at at Southwestern Bell and um, ultimately you know it, in in a working at a big accounting firm in the consulting division. I guess I never I never had a job where I was just sitting at a desk and doing some corporate function. Um, I I was always in a customer contact, uh, business generation, um, you know, client service type role. So I was often out of the office as much or more than I was in an office. Um, I guess interestingly, just to, to play off what you said, dealing with people, getting along with people, um, you know, it's hugely important on, uh, you know, a lot of adults in a uh, uh, dealing with them in a consulting and or marketing kind of role where you're hoping to get some agreement and, and maybe, um, you know, get them to agree to do business with you or to whatever. Um, I don't know, maybe different skills, but it's uh, challenging in its own way compared to dealing with uh, did you say six six year olds or ten year olds or whatever? Yeah, so. yeah, that's the age range. So I teach from four to thirteen. Uh, four to thirteen, yeah, yeah. So, so de- dealing with people, adults or children, is is always a challenge. I guess it's just it's always undefined. Everybody, uh, the people you're dealing with aren't scripted. You know, if we could True. control them, then uh, maybe life would be more boring. But. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think if every day was the exact same. I mean, that's yeah. one thing I found during the lockdown, you know, trying to trying uh, my best to teach without having the people in front of you. And it, it, it's it's yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Having the exact same every day was a trial, most definitely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. What just um, before we go on to um, the the kind of big event that really changed yeah. your life? Uh, what was your typical working day like up until uh, July nineteen ninety one? Well, I I'd say from the time and uh, I think around eighty six that I got involved in uh, management consulting at one of what we used to call the big eight accounting firms. Uh, I, I was at Cooper's and Librand before I, I 
was you know approached and hired out of there by what was KPMG Pete Marwick. So I'd say kind of a typical week rather than a typical day because we we would um, often get on an airplane Sunday night or Monday morning, fly to a client site, work oh three or four or five days at the client site, it, it dependent, but and maybe even work in a couple different cities. Hmm. The client work would involve um, generally. You know, interviewing clients, um, we would be doing requirements, definition kind of work. I I ended up with the telecom connection, ended up being a networking and telecommunications, kind of an IT type role. Mm. So we were doing design work, which would always start with requirements definition and, you know, do various kinds of vendor interface and research to try to uh, figure out maybe how to design a tech particular technical solution to something. Um, so it was, you know, meeting with people, sometimes doing some research, um, flying home. Typically would, you know, have a day or two maybe in the office and that would be busy with oh, billing, maybe uh, internal project team meetings, group meetings. Um, you know, I was part of a practice that uh, people with kind of similar skills, compatible skills, IT type stuff. So there'd be some internal overhead. So so the, the week was... Um, There's a lot of variety in it then. Yeah, a lot of variety, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cause that, that's one thing I would hate to, I, I don't think I could function in a job that was the exact same all day, every day. <laughs> and I know... It's funny, whenever you talk to somebody that hasn't worked with kids or uh, anyone who hasn't been a teacher, they're like, but it is the same every day for you. You just go in, you teach, you leave. And I'm like, ha no, no. <laughs> right, right. And there's 30-something children in front of you and you have to keep all their attention for six hours at a time. Trust me, no, no day is the same as the one before it. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I'd, I'd like to now talk to you about um, wh- where you were and what you were doing and what happened to you. Um, on the 2nd of July, 1991. Okay. Um, yeah, I was uh, with my boss and um, we had flown down to Atlanta for a couple of days to meet with a, a client at a big bank down there. Um, we, we used to have a kind of a service offering. We would do gather a lot of data from financial service institutions um, about their IT, you know, a lot of metrics, a lot of costs and number of locations, transmission, just a lot of numbers. We put them in a database and um, compare them to their peers, give them a report, mm-hmm. tell them how they were doing, maybe indicated some gross high level. They, you know, under under invested, over invested, whatever. Um, there was, you know, some conclusions to start some discussions with them. So we were going over that. In addition, we were kind of coaching him a little bit at, at his, you know, suggestion. Um, his company was going to get taken over, it, it appeared. And um, we had worked with him at a previous job to uh, help him navigate, you know, give him some suggestions and brainstorm with him how to navigate the takeover to uh, his advantage. So, um we were going to fly home for 4th of July holiday here in St. Louis. And uh, we, my boss and I and uh, this client, he said he would walk us over to the subway in downtown Atlanta. And that would be the quickest way to the airport. Mm-hmm. So we were walking uh, down the street uh, close, close to, uh, close to the subway. I think CNN towers is actually there, but um and I heard kind of back over my left shoulder, I heard pop, 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 pop. And being um, July the 2nd, I thought, boy, that sure sounds like firecrackers. And I turned my head. Yeah. And as I turned my head, I just felt, you know, wham. And um, I, my, uh, my eyesight I mean, my, it just exploded in my head and, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't see anything. There was a lot of pain in, in particularly my eyes. And, uh, I fell down to the pavement 
um, on my hands and knees. And uh, I, I guess I, re I remember thinking after a few minutes that I didn't know what had happened to me. I didn't expect that I was gonna see, again, see ever again. Um, and, uh, you know, it occurred to me that I, I, I kind of consciously, thoughtfully rolled over onto my back. I somehow decided that would have been a better position for, to, for me to be in no matter what had happened to me. So, mm. um, and, and there, there I lay. It, a couple minutes, it seemed pretty, pretty promptly, actually, an EMT guy showed up and, uh, and uh, you know, emergency medical tech and uh, came up to me and asked me how I was doing and started calling me chief, which I'll never forget. And, uh, you know, he, so he, he checked me out and uh, checked out apparently the, uh, the other two folks that were with me. It, so it turns out it was a gunshot, obviously. I was shot in the head. And uh, the two folks that were with me were both shot and they were, they were killed. So I, uh, you know, I've always thought I am, I'm, I'm certainly the lucky one. And, uh, I yeah. often run into people today and I'll, I'll tell them that, that I'm, I'm, one, I'm the luckiest person they're going to run into today. And it, it's, it just shows how, um, like, I mean, first of all, it's an, it's, it's a traumatizing and horrifying event. Um, obviously, um, yeah. But the fact that you can say, oh, I, but I'm the lucky one, do you, like the, the fact that you survived and the, your boss and that client didn't, do you think that helped you to be positive about what happened? Or are you just someone that's really positive and determined anyway? Um, I, you know, probably subconsciously, yeah. Um, um, I, I'm sure that it does. I can remember um, I was in the hospital for about three weeks, and I'd say the first two weeks of that, I was in various stages of uh, heavily, you know, well, a couple of days I was unconscious, and then after that, pretty highly medicated. Um, but, you know, the last week or so in the hospital, I was really not so medicated. I, and, and I think that allowed me to come to grips with it um, kind of slowly and hazily, um, but it, it probably at, at a good speed. And, and I, I don't know at that point in time, if I really thought I was, you know, lucky as I, as I clearly do today, but I did know that I was, the same person. I knew I was all there. I knew I was, um, my brain worked the way it always had. I thought the way I always had. I, I just, I, I didn't feel sorry for myself in particular. I didn't really recognize my limitations um, as, as I was laying in a hospital bed and everybody waiting on me. But, um, and, and I, I was aware though that I, I was there and I did know what had happened to the other two folks. And uh, yeah, I, I guess it gave me some strength to, to carry on where they couldn't. So. Mm -hmm. And like, I, 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 this might sound um, a bit insensitive and I, I don't mean it to be, but um, did you have any guilt over the fact that you had survived and the others didn't like you, you'd often hear the term survivor's guilt. Um, I, I did not, I, I really didn't. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I'm thankful for that. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I, uh, several, quite, quite a few things I'm grateful for, you know, number one is that, it wasn't a real traumatic event. I wasn't in fear. I didn't know what was happening. I wasn't, nobody approached us on the street and, you know, suddenly waved, waved a gun or, you know, acted like they were going to beat us up or anything. So I, I don't really, doesn't seem to me as a 
traumatic event that I'm suffering from PTSD. And, and maybe just because the whole event was just so um, um, kind of, uh, I, I can't searching for the right word, but it, it just wasn't, they, they weren't part of the event. Yeah. For me. Uh, I suppose because yeah. like, it was so sudden. And also, yeah. I mean, you didn't know what was going on until all of a sudden you had a serious amount of pain and everything. And yeah. you were probably unaware of what had happened to the other two until the EMT had come. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, and, and none of us really, I mean, the, the fellow that did it, we didn't know him. He didn't know us. It, it was, in fact, totally random. Um, you know, so none of us and none of any of our decisions had any impact on this other than just the uh, the happenstance of uh, all the decisions we all make every day. Uh, yeah. Leave at this time or go to this place. Uh, yeah. So um, the you said you're in hospital for three weeks after, but obviously the recovery process wasn't completely finished. Um, I know myself, I had somebody who had to spend time in a rehabilitation hospital um, due to uh, a, a very serious incident with them as well. So like you, did you spend time in a rehabilitation facility of any kind? And what was that like? Um, yes, I did. Um, so I, what I experienced, you know, after, after three weeks um, in a hospital, hmm. they had, uh, you know, it was time to release me. And I think even the, the medical people would probably admit they were a little confused about what to do with me because I, while well, I had a, you know, a wound, a wound that was still healing in me, um, I, I really wasn't, I didn't have medical reasons to be in the hospital at that point in time. Yeah. And yet here I am instantly a blind person with no adaptive skills. Um, you know, I didn't have a white cane or, you know, I, nothing. Um, insisting that I go home where I, where I lived by myself, um, my parents offered and actually wanted me to move back into my old bedroom in their house. And, um, for whatever reason, I just, I, I was not going to do that. I wanted to go back to my home where I was comfortable, where I knew everything, where everything was, mm. um, so as an answer to your question, that, that's what I did. I first went home and uh, over the ensuing several weeks, and I, I write about this quite a bit, I was struck, you know, on a daily, many times a day basis with all the things I could not do as a person who was blind with, without the adaptive equipment and some, in some cases training that I needed. Um, could you, you know, could you tell me a bit more about that? Cause I mean, obviously uh, yeah. as a sighted person myself, the, the first thing that comes to my mind are like um, enjoying uh, movies and uh, reading and video games, like those kind of things that are very sight dependent, but what were the things that really struck you as, Oh, I really didn't think this would be a, this activity or skill or thing I do every day would be as affected. Um, the, the one thing that's, that struck me just immediately was um, that I couldn't make notes. It, it was accessing and storing information, basically. Oh, okay. I, I could not even write a phone number down to refer to it if I was supposed to call, you know, who, whoever. Um, and, and that just was an immediate frustration because I was trying to call people to do some research, to figure out who to talk to, to, you know, learn this or that, or, you know, whatever. Um, even phone numbers, maybe that I'd stored, you know, on a piece of paper back then, uh, you know, I couldn't access. So, so that was a big thing. Um, that wasn't obvious to me. Um, you know, and I describe in the book just, trying to walk up the block, walk up my block um, without a cane, without any skills and just banging into parked cars and, you know, truck mirrors that were hanging out right about head height. And, uh, uh, but, but 
you know, that's probably, that was probably obvious to me that that was mm. something I didn't have any skills with. Finding things in the kitchen, um, you know, all the cardboard boxes seem the same, whether they're crackers or cereal or uncooked rice or whatever. The cans don't differentiate themselves either, so I couldn't tell the green beans from the pork and beans. Um, just a lot, lot of details. Recreationally, I I did it. used to enjoy reading um Sports Illustrated in particular, but, you know, newspapers and things like that. So that, that was a huge frustration. Um, hmm. So, so you, you said you started doing research and looking for um, help, I assume. Um, yeah. so, so how did you, did, did you find it and how did you find it? So um, when I was still in the hospital, the social worker there um, got me hooked up with a group called St. Louis Society for the Blind um, and a woman who was very knowledgeable and valuable in, in my life back then um, came to visit me in the hospital. And based on what I told her, which was that, you know, I intended to try to go back to work and do the same job that I had done previously, um, and that, you know, I had at least some assurances from my uh, highest, higher levels in my, the company I worked for, KPMG, Pete Norwick, that they would give me a chance to do that. She, um, she got me hooked up with the state of Missouri, mm. um, and it's called the Department of Rehab Services for the Blind. Um, the and they just have to do kind of different client groups, whether it's age-related blindness or in my case, it was sort of more of an occupational therapy sort of a category. Right. So um, I was home about a week maybe and the, she, she made a referral and the, the fellow from the Missouri state of Missouri called me to talk about it um, and came by and we talked about it. Um, Part of the, uh, you know, so so rather than going in the into rehab directly out of the hospital, there was a belief within the blindness community that um, uh, what 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 the state of Missouri wanted from me was a commitment of a year that I would go and it would take me a year to wow. yeah become comfortable with being blind first of all emotionally and 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 then be in a position to assimilate whatever it is they wanted to teach me, I guess. Mm. And in some cases, maybe acquiring some of the skills might take that long. And uh, I was, I, I couldn't devote a year to it. I mean, it was a long time. I, I was a divorced father of two uh, young kids at the time. I just couldn't imagine, you know, jumping out of their life um, at that point in their lives. And, and the other thing I had to do with this, you know, my business world, if, if in fact I was going to get, you know, be given the opportunity to come back to work and I didn't know if it would work. They didn't know if it would work, but we, we could find out. Mm -hmm. um, what, I, what I did was dealing with clients, whether it's generating business or providing consulting services, and my existing clients wouldn't wait a year either. So I, I, was, I was in a big hurry. Yeah. Um, so, so what, what was, um, what do you think, because you, you explained about the, uh, about like things like storing and accessing information was something really tricky for you at that time. What was something that you adapted to successfully or quickly then in that case? Well, um, my dad and I, uh, given the world of technology in 1991, you know, he, yeah. we, we kicked it around and what we ended up doing was going out and buying me a, uh, like a handheld dictation device, you know, oh, okay. with, with a little micro cassette in it. And that worked great. Although obviously, um, I, you know, here we are 30 years later and people may not completely remember what cassettes are, but you know, you, as you piled more messages, yeah, I know people do. As you piled more messages on it, that got to be, you know, an, an hour's worth of 
one phone number after another or the directions to get to some place or you know whatever it might have been so it, it wasn't very efficient but it worked it solved the problem immediately for sure yeah i suppose that's the thing it's all about um the quick fixes so that yeah. you have time to adapt and then learn the long-term fixes then when you need to yeah yeah you know, and we, we rearranged things in the kitchen and got rid of stuff that I knew I didn't need. I mean, we, we, we did a lot just kind of common sense wise faced with the, the challenges um, to, to organize my life um, as best we could so that I, you know, could, could live there and could get some sort of a meal, could, could find the things in the kitchen that I wanted to. So. Um, how, like obviously it's it's um it's a very traumatic thing for you, but it must have been traumatic as well for you your family, for your sister, your parents, um, your children. Um how how did obviously they they didn't they weren't ecstatic at the news, but how did they take it and how how did they all kind of deal with it, do you know? Um you know, I so my my dad and my sister um came to Atlanta immediately so that by the time I regained consciousness a couple of days later, I, uh, they were right there with me, which, which was awesome. And they, they were very, they were upbeat, but they're both, um, you know, serious, sober-minded people. And, uh, you know, the, the, we would kind of explore some of the challenges or what life might be after this and, things like that. But um, I, I think, you know, in general, they dealt with it very, very well. And my mom as well, she had stayed in St. Louis to kind of manage things from that perspective, not knowing how long I or my sister, my dad would be in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, I, th I think, personally, I think my mom was emotionally shaken by this. Um, for, for the remainder of her life, frankly, um, you know, and I, I anyway, I, I know uh, both my parents have died since then. Um, and, I, and I do know that, you know, they were both very proud of me. My, my dad in particular was, you know, very proud of how I dealt with this and that I was able to go back to work and continue on with my life. So, well, I think that's a test. That's a, that's like uh, how can I put it? That's a testament to you and your determination, though, because yeah. they probably both felt relieved that you know that you didn't need someone to look after you, that you were as independent as possible. Because especially especially what you did, you know, seven months after the incident, <laughs> which boggles the mind. I didn't even know this is an activity that. Mm -hmm. um blind people were able to do so uh how did you get and i'm purposely not saying what it is so you can like wow my listeners with it but uh how, how did you get to that point uh well you know you're uh you're alluding to me taking up taking up snow skiing as a blind person that's it yeah <laughs> and uh i i yeah i uh i I, when I was in the hospital in Atlanta, as I, as I tell the story in the book, um, I, I remembered actually, uh, I had skied a very little bit and I remembered it must've been a trip in about 84, seeing a blind skier in, in Aspen, Colorado. And at some point, you know, everybody's wringing their hands about poor Bill. And I, I told my sister back, you know, all the way back in the hospital that, you know, I think, somehow things are going to be okay. And I'm going to, maybe I'll just go skiing this winter. And uh, I think they all looked at me like I was, you know, nuts. And, uh, but so that, that was kind of on the horizon pretty early on. And uh, ultimately I, I did end up tracking down uh, a group in, in Aspen who um, was organized to provide it's called guides for blind skiers. It's a thing. I didn't invent it. So, uh, oh, you should just say you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, 
and how, how does that work does the guide ski uh, like i i have seen it because i was looking at your website and there's a very yeah. very interesting video there and i um everyone should check it out after this uh, episode well could you explain how it actually works yeah um so i i am totally blind and um some blind some blind skiers are not totally blind and they would follow a guide more. A guide would wear very dark clothing and maybe yelp or make a noise every time they made a left or right turn and the, the blind skier could follow. Being a total, I, I'm not comfortable on following sound that well. And so a guide skis behind me. And when we're skiing, he is essentially, or she is essentially saying, you know, left, right, hold your next left, 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 you know, right, left, right. And, you know, it's somewhat more intricate than that, but not, not, not terribly so. I mean, that's the idea. And as we kind of get down to a lift area, they'll say, you know, right turn to a stop and um, we'll navigate through the lift line. Often the, the guide will kind of grab my underneath my pole and we'll be side by side and he'll steer me just like a stick shift on a car, so to speak. Oh, yeah. Just just by grabbing my pole. So it it uh there, there's some techniques and, and it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and it, it really works quite well. So I, and I, mean, I and I love it, you know. And that's what I was gonna say, because I can see in your face like you're lighting up talking about it and the directions. And that's the thing. I mean when someone acquires a disability in the same way you did a lot of people like and i'm sure even there was a part of you even felt it they're like oh no my life is over and things are going to be disaster or whatever but it's that's not the case i mean the world today is so much more inclusive and accessible and there's so many things like uh ski guides to help people with disabilities access the things that they that people without disabilities can do yeah i i agree um yeah my my world today is I couldn't have imagined um, kind of the world I live in, whether it's, you know, technology, um, there's, that I use the talking computer. Uh, So, you know, I use just regular Microsoft, um, Windows applications, uh, Microsoft Office, and there's a program on the computer that's called JAWS, which is basically an application interface that causes everything that's on the screen to be spoken to me um, through speakers um, on the computer or headphones or whatever, obviously. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so that's a big part of my life. That solved that information storage and retrieval problem that I had in in a much better way. Um, Yeah, so there's a lot of that kind of support. There's also a lot of... uh, I mean, I, I think I, I'm a better skier than I was when I could see. <laughs> I've, you know, had an opportunity to, to ski hundreds of days um, in the last 30 years. Wow. All over the Western United States, including up in Canada at uh, Whistler. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I just love it. It is, it is such a kick. Of course, yes. It's, it's, a, it's a thrill whether you're sighted or not or yeah. blind it's still the thrill is still there yeah. um so then of course then this this is like i mean it's not enough for you to go and to continue to work and to ski seven months after losing your sight but then you went and you wrote a book <laughs> as well on top of all that many years later so what i mean i'm, a, I'm asking the same question twice if, if you'd let me uh one yes. also, what was the biggest challenge of writing Snowblind? just as a person and then what was the biggest challenge of writing the book then as a person that was blind if you know what I mean uh yeah so I had been you know I have heard for 30 years um that I needed to write a book I I ran into a lot of people in my you know, the 20 or so years that I went back to work, um, whether they were co-workers that someone who had kind of 
lived through along with me what what happened um and and others were you know clients and client people and just anyway you know people are always curious and i'd say always very um polite but uh you know curious to know what happened and so as i would tell the story i i would always be told i needed to write a book um, the, the, the biggest question was just having the time. Once I went back to work, it was a fairly demanding um, job. I, one thing about being blind, I'd say I learned that surprised me was that I can do darn near anything, but many of the things that I needed to do take long, longer than they did when I was sighted or, or for a sighted person. So, um, I didn't really have the time and therefore actually writing a book really didn't come onto the, come onto the radar. Um, but after I got retired, after I was retired, which was probably 10 years ago, I started fiddling around and, you know, writing uh, kind of the, the first chapter, so to speak of the book, uh, just to, what happened on uh, you know July 2nd it was fairly easy, but, I, I get sent it to a friend of mine who was a writer and he, uh, or an editor really. Um, he, and his reaction was, well, that's kind of a nice start, but it's not a book at all. <laughs> so I, you know, the, the thought was there. I ended up a few years later meeting a woman in St. Louis who has a, uh, um, a business. She's an editor, publisher, um, and it, it's at uh, thebookprofessor.com. Um, her name's Nancy Erickson. And uh, she ended up encouraging me quite a bit um, from her professional world. You know, we, we, she ended up being the editor and publisher of this book. But uh, along the way, she encouraged me quite a bit, taught me quite a bit about, you know, the structure the structure of a book and the structure of a paragraph and some of the thought processes, you know, th things that I needed to know um, just to do it. But uh, I, st I still didn't throw myself into it. You hear writers, you know, that have all this discipline that they're going to sit and write for an hour a day or hour and a half or two hours a day. I, I found for myself that, well, to answer your second question first, um, <laughs> some of it was very difficult. Um, I, I had really never told the story. Um, I'd never thought through a lot of the stuff I thought back through as I was writing this um, and doing some research. I, I tried to, I mean, I've talked to EMT people. I've talked to a lot of different people. Um, so some of it was hard. Um, so, so whether through just, you know, lack of discipline or, or through the difficulty of revisiting some of the things emotionally, um, I put it down for a year at a time, several times. And uh, when I, then I'd, I'd get back to it and I'd be surprised at maybe how much I had or where I'd stopped and, uh, and, 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 and pick it up. I, found that um, I found that I would write when I was inspired I would write I could write you know chapters chapters you know tens of pages just blah 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 when it, when I was in the mood or inspired uh, I, I could write a lot um, so same as us all then all us writers were all like that <laughs> writer's block I guess is what that is huh yeah so and so then when you um finally then had the book done and had, I'm sure it went through many drafts and there was a lot of ed editing process and everything. But yeah. when you finally became published earlier this year, what, like two months ago now, I think it is. Um, what was that like? Like how, how, how do you, how did you feel on publication day? Um, like it's a big achievement to write a book at all, but especially to write a book that's a memoir about a traumatic event and especially as someone with a disability that means yeah. that is you know impeded a little bit to write it like what was that moment like then um you know it was really a feeling of accomplishment i i was very happy with the way that the book came out um i've 
been very, I've been really thrilled with the reaction to it. Um, with whether from a lot of friends who have, I've, some of who I knew before and some of who I've met in the last, you know, 15 or 20 years. Um, but I've, I, I guess I've, I've just been really pleased with the reaction to it all. Um, I mean, first of all, it's a feeling of accomplishment and I'm glad it's over. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad it's done. I'm glad it's done, whether it's just for my family to have a record of it, um, for my, you know, my kids to find out more and, and, and for, you know, other people that are in my life. Um, but I'm also glad that, you know, I do think it tells a story of, you know, we all have challenges in our lives. I had challenges, I thought, before this happened to me. Um, a lot of them may not measure up. This is very dramatic to get shot. But, um, you know, I, th I think the book is describes kind of the my approach to accepting what had happened to me, um, having the hope to go on, you know, and the courage to not to buckle, you know, not to give into it and, and not to just fold up and go move in with my parents or, you know, do whatever, but uh, to, to continue to get out and try to live life to the fullest. Um, it talks about, you know, going to, going to rehab and following directions, learning what I needed to do, having the skills that I needed and, you know, then coming out and being, you know, brave enough and courageous enough to jump out in front of, you know, potential clients or new clients and, you know, this professional world that I dealt in that I honestly don't remember ever being running into somebody professionally who was blind. I since have met quite a number of people, uh, many lawyers and professionals of other sorts who are blind. So it, uh, I, I didn't do something that's completely unique, but I do did something that, you know, I didn't really know. I didn't have a path for, I just, uh, figured I would get to the destination and I just kept plugging away and doing what I needed to do between here and there. So, mm. and I, I guess just to finish that thought, I, I'm happy I've got it all written down for that reason that if others can read it and gain from it, you know, uh, the, the hope and the desire to try and the courage to get out and do it that, that I had, um, you know, I'd be thrilled. That would make me very happy. I, I'm, I'm, I cannot imagine anyone who wouldn't yeah. come across your story and your, and your book and not be inspired and not feel like, well, if, if, if this man can get over that hurdle, I can yeah. get over this hurdle, you know? Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a testament to your determination and perseverance and, well, thank you. Grace, I don't know, maybe stubbornness, maybe some people will call it either. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think we, we don't want to go too deeply into my psychological makeup, I'm sure. But, yeah. <laughs> well, it would need uh, to be a longer podcast if I went into the psychological makeup of people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but no, just, you know, just to finish that thought, I've, I've had a, a number of friends of mine have bought multiple copies of the book and given them and tell me they give them to their, they've given them to their, you know, grown kids. And, and you know, their their point is to tell their kids to, you know, get off the, give up the pity party and get on with your life, you know? Yeah. And uh, that, that's flattering, very flattering to me that people could get that out of it and, and want yeah. to do that with their own kids. So. It's always nice to be used as a, as an example to others. Um, yeah. You know, uh, so, and, and you deserve that. I mean, what you've gone through and what you've overcome and what you've done since, uh, yeah. why wouldn't people? Yeah. I have one, one other question before I, uh, so I always ask in every episode, I ask the same, the last few questions are the same for everybody because I think it's really interesting to see the different answers. But before I get there, I do have one question. Um, what's the one thing that you wish every sighted person knew or, or something you wish every sighted person would do to better integrate or include the blind community? 
Um, you know, I think that that's a great question, I'm not, especially considering my answer. Um, I think anybody with a disability, um, and I would say certainly for myself, um, I anybody that I come in contact with, it, it is never, it's always helpful and never offensive to ask me what they can do to help me. Hmm. You know, if, if in any situation, um, I know you asked me something earlier about how my family reacted and uh, I'd say family and friends in general reacted by wanting to do everything in the world for me um, and not wanting to do too much, not wanting to offend me, but, um, and, and my family was, you know, very good about asking how they could help. And I, I write about the first day home and saying, telling my parents to, okay, thanks for, you know, see you later. I'll call <laughs> you and go home. And bye. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but, and they, they worried, but they trusted. Um, so anyway, the, the answer is, I think I was always uncomfortable with people with disabilities. I probably didn't, ask them how they were doing, you know, just generally how you're doing, not how are you doing regarding your disability, but just how are you? Mm. You know, I probably wasn't as friendly as I now look back and wish I had been, but uh, the, the answer is for anybody in any situation, I think it's always, always appropriate to ask, you know, how can I help you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do agree with you. Like, I mean, as a, an able-bodied person, um, there is always that, fear that you're going to I mean it depends on how you ask how can I help you I mean yeah. <laughs> I, I had mentioned that I uh, that I'm a teacher and the, yep. the recently I just finished a kind of a, an extra summer camp type thing for children with um, different types of special needs and we went on the train one day and uh, we went over like the rules of the train and you know you don't you be an appropriate volume and if somebody is standing and there's no other seats you should offer them your seat <laughs> one, of the, one of the children asked that so wait if there's loads of other seats and i see an old person should i go up to the old person and say do you want my seat <laughs> you know it's kind of like mm, no so i think that's the thing it's like uh, don't be afraid to ask for help but obviously think about when and why you're asking to help don't ask to help because you want to feel better yourself that you try right. ask to help because you think the person might need help. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, you might, uh, I, I've also learned that, you know, I, I mean, I would say in general, most people with disabilities uh, I, that I've come in contact with, I mean, most people have a sense of humor about the situation they're in and um, you, you're probably not going to offend a person if you you know, if, if you ask in a sincere way, you know, how can I be of help? And uh, kind of clears the air that you don't have to worry about, are you doing what you ought to be doing? Or, and, and, you know, just, on the other hand, you know, I, people don't become uh, perfect human beings no. just because they have a disability either. And uh, you're liable to con hit somebody on a bad day. Somebody is caught me on a bad day somewhere along the line where I, I didn't react well to something, I'm sure. But uh, anyway. We're all human. So that's yep, we are. We we are. And that's that's I guess what I would encourage people to keep in mind is yeah, fundamentally we're all humans. Exactly. Um so my last couple of questions then, Bill. Yeah. Um, they're very nice and easy. So when this interview is over, I mean, it's what, a little bit after 11 in the morning for you now. So what's the first thing on your to-do list today? <laughs> what's the first thing you're going to do when we said our goodbyes? Uh, probably uh, I've, I've got a nice adaptive piece of equipment that uh, I've got a whole bunch of books on it. It's called a Victor Reader Stream, and I'll, I'll probably finish reading a book. Oh, well, excellent, because my next, my next one of my questions is, uh, what's the last book you read? So there you go. Um, you know what? The last, the last book I read was, um, there's an author over from uh, your part of the world named Val McDermott. All right. Um, a, a series, Tony Hill is the series. Um, 
and I read one of those books. So I, I really, I enjoy her as an author and uh, it's, it's a good series. So excellent stuff. Um, so uh, there'll be links and everything like that for anybody who is listening or watching um, in the description, in the show notes to find Bill's book and everything like that. If you're interested in buying it and checking out the full story, because I mean, we, we condensed the whole thing into like, 45 50 minutes <laughs> you know it, he there's a whole book about it folks <laughs> um so bill thank you so much uh for coming on to the show it's been great to meet you and to get to know you so thanks very much well thank you connor i really appreciate the opportunity to come on and uh, i would also encourage anybody that uh has listened to all this to get the book and yeah uh, of course ho- hopefully people can be inspired Thanks once again to Bill Johnson for coming onto the show. It was a great experience to um, meet him, to get to know him and to hear his story, as well as just to hear how, I don't know, how easily, well, not easily, but just how much he overcame and uh, the work he put into it. It was amazing. And I am really looking forward to getting to read Snowblind in the future. Um, if you want to hear more from Bill, be sure to go to his website and check him out. Um, and you can also find links to that and his book Snowblind in the show notes in the description of this podcast. Anyway, that is it from me. So be sure to let me know what you thought of the episode uh, by heading over to Instagram and uh, commenting on the post about this very episode. And let's just get a bit of conversation going. What was the thing you found most interesting about Bill? Um would you go skiing seven months after a serious injury? (laughs) I know I probably wouldn't. I'm not as brave as Bill. Anyway, that's it for this week. Chat to you all later. Thanks for listening today. I hope you loved listening to this episode just as much as I loved recording it. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or over on Podchaser. Until then, be good, be brave, and tell stories. See ya. (laughs)